Welcome to the CE Pro Podcast. I'm Executive Editor Arlen Schweiger. The beginning of a new year is always a great time for self-reflection and self-analysis and putting together a game plan to make changes to your business. However, planning for changes and actually implementing them is easier said than done. In fact, there can be such a disconnect with this that One Vision Resources presented a whole session on the topic at last fall's Cedia Expo virtual event. Well, now that we've turned the page to 2021, here's an in-depth discussion that One Vision's Joey Kolchinski and Jason Griffin had with me on the matter about how integrators can start making changes this year. Joey Kolchinski and Jason Griffin of One Vision Resources. Thanks for joining CE Pro today. Thanks for having Thanks us. Thanks for having us. So Joey, Thanks. let's just start with you as a, as company founder. Can you just give us an overview of what One Vision Resources does? What do you guys specialize in? I know you've been around for a bit, so chances mm-hmm. are a lot of uh, our readers are familiar with you. But for anyone who's not, um, just get us up to speed on, a little bit on on what you do and any other capabilities that you've added recently. Yeah, well, it really all starts to describe what we do. It's important to really start, I think, with a little bit of my experience. Uh, I came at this industry 20 years ago, really starting with a service-based MSP for the homeowner. Um, I supported personal technology, computers, mobile devices. I eventually started supporting smart home systems. And I really built an integration arm to my business because I realized I I thought I needed to really build the system in order to do the service. But the service was what I was really after. Um, and for uh, about a decade, I, I optimized and, and experimented with a, a recurring revenue-based service model that was incredibly successful. Um, and that really led me to you know, develop a strong conviction for what I believe the future of this industry could be and how I thought integrators really had an amazing potential. Uh, I actually think every integrator is sitting on a gold mine, and many may not you know, be aware of it. Um, yeah. and Joey, what, it's were you, really- what were you doing way back then in terms of um, as an MSP, what were some of the services that you? Oh, were yeah. Providing? So to give you some context, uh, my minimum fee was a thousand dollars a month. I had several clients paying upwards of ten thousand dollars a month. My average was around twenty five hundred a month. So I was working with some very very high end clients in the Boston area. They all had a lot of technology. They had a lot of money, and I endeavored to deliver a service that was worthy of those kinds of premiums. So as an example, I would get a text message saying, hey, my iPhone is shattered. And within two hours, I'd have a new one fully loaded in their hands, all their credentials, all their passwords, all their settings. They didn't even have to log into their Starbucks or Uber app. It was already done for them. Um, So that kind of service, uh, I mean, think, you know, Apple Store geniuses that are plucked out of Apple, then, you know, for their amazing emotional intelligence and empathy and EQ and ability to um, uh, engage you know, with other human beings and you set them up for success to just go and work with a small number of clients. Um, that's, that's what we did. Right. So it's, it's not like it was, it's any different from what I think it's not a different scope from what integrators do. It's just, we took it all to another level and it allowed us to, uh, source this conviction around what was possible. So in 2016, you know, I shut down my integration company uh, and uh, took everything I learned from that experience of building up a service department. And um, I started to partner with integrators to enable them 
to really uh, reach their full potential and start to build up their businesses to enable them to reach their fullest potential. And um, the way that we do that is by um, staffing up with a team of amazing experts across many verticals, uh, ranging from service operations to marketing, to sales, to accounting, to HR, recruiting, um, uh, executive coaching, EOS implementation, uh, to really help our partners rethink their businesses from the ground up uh, and ultimately see through on this vision of, of becoming uh, a technology manager and modernizing their business to do it. And you work with uh, integrator partners nationwide, is it? Or is it just regional? Um, how exactly does that we work? Do. How, do you, how do you find them? or, or yeah. How do they find you? We're location agnostic, at least within North America, uh, United States and Canada. Um, we are really selective for, you know, uh, culture and, and, um, and, and say a culture and ability to execute work style, mm -hmm. right? That's what we're really selective for. So, you know, we're, we're focused on really great fit, uh, philosophical alignment. Do we see the future the same way? Do we envision a model that encompasses not just projects, but also services, service? Um, and is there a willingness to embrace change? Uh, that integrator, there could be 10 of them in one city. That's okay. That's great. We want to build an amazing portfolio of like-minded integrators who are all striving to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. And so what uh, about, uh, what is your estimated dealer base count up to these days? And is it all residential? Is there, are some of them doing resi-mercial or a little mm -hmm. bit, um, you know, did the projects delve kind of all over the place or, you know, or, or some very specialized? We, so we, we have a wide variety of partners. Um, you know, the commonality is the way they run their business and the way they think about their business and what they think their, you know, their future potential is and what they're going after. Um, with that said, you know, we have my very first integrator was an extremely, our very first partner, I should say, was an extremely high end uh, luxury integrator in the SoCal market. They maybe do a few projects a year that average, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars each. Uh, but we have partners who are more retail oriented. Um, their average job size is a few thousand dollars each. And, um, uh, and they do a dozen of those or, or 30 or 40 of those every month. We have partners with retail shops. We have partners, many of our partners do dabble in commercial. So, you know, as, as we call them, resi commercial. Um, we have a few partners that are very commercially focused and, you know, are starting to put more attention in their residential environment. The neat thing about uh, service is it's agnostic to all of that. You know, it's important if, if you embrace a service model, it, it, you need to have a model that can support any of the types of projects that you take on. So if it's going to be commercial, if it's going to be luxury, if it's going to be, uh, uh, you know, light resi, then, you know, all of it still needs to be able to be serviced by your service department. Right. Okay. So let's talk a, a little bit more about that uh, with Jason um, going on in terms of the service aspect of it. Now, Jason, you are also, you're a former integrator. Yep. And in terms of what one of the things that One Vision really has to get through to uh, your partners is this whole way of rethinking service uh, from the ground up, really. Yeah. And how you need to kind of unlearn old ways of thinking about service in order to get that to reach its full potential, which, as Joey said, could be a goldmine for a lot of these guys. Yeah. Uh, so let's just kind of delve into that and tell us a bit about um, that philosophy and how that kind of leads One Vision along to yeah. the way that you approach uh, your partners. 
Happy to. Yeah. Like you said, I'm a, a form, former integrator. So I've been with One Vision now for uh, close to four years. Uh, but prior to that, spent many years, about 13, 14 years as a residential integrator um, in all different facets of the business and worked at a, a number of different companies in different states and noticed a, a commonality across many of those companies whereby you know, uh, the good companies out there, the good integrators out there, they all, they all take service seriously. It's not, it, it's not that it's uh, brushed off. It's part of what makes the successful companies successful. They wouldn't be around if they didn't uh, at some level take it seriously. But at its core, it, it tends to be looked at in my experience, uh, both as an integrator and now at One Vision working with and talking with lots of integrators all over the country, um, tends to be looked at almost as I would say like a necessary evil, right? It's like a, it's a thing that we have to do and we really work hard and we really try to do it well, but ultimately it's about keeping the client happy so we can get the next project. And, you know, at its core, that's okay. But ultimately we do believe at One Vision that like you mentioned, sort of unlearning that way of thinking is really the key that does at a certain point become a limiting belief. Right, and you have to be willing to kind of go back to zero and take a fresh look at service from the ground up and look at it as its own thing. It needs to stand on its own. If service exists within your company, really only as a way, again, to keep those clients happy and kind of build the bridge to the next project, maybe you can get by on that. But, but again, if you wanna really reach that full potential, you've gotta be willing to look at it with that beginner's mindset and really go back to square one and say, hey, how can service in our company be something fundamentally different, something that stands on its own as a leading part of our business, as a leading part of our value prop, and as something that, that generates meaningful revenues and profits for our company. So a lot of times we, we talk about that, that really learning how to go execute service is, is actually less hard than unlearning old ways of, old ways of thinking about it. Yeah, I was going to say, you mentioned that in terms of the, the full potential of service, and you started talking a little bit about what that entails, but what, you know, what are some of those things that that will take it from that level of being kind of this sort of begrudging afterthought from a lot of integrators to this thing where they could see it, you know, with, do with dollar signs, looking at it as, you know, a revenue stream or um, lead generator, things like that. What, what exactly would you put into that grouping of, you know, under the full potential umbrella there? Yeah, I, that, that's a, it's a, Big question, and it's one we could easily spend an entire episode talking about, but I'll try to approach it from kind of a high level and say, number one, I think the first thing that comes to my mind when you say that is th this is um, this is a game of sort of remanaging expectations with clients, first and foremost. Uh, that's one of the big challenges and things to think about when you really embark on this mission to, to reimagine and re-engineer service is you've got to start by saying, okay, we've got dozens, hundreds, maybe even thousands of, of legacy clients who have always sort of played by a certain set of rules. Well, how do we go re-manage those expectations and make sure that everybody is playing by a uniform set of rules with clear expectations, uh, you know, a baseline level of service, perhaps setting up different tiers of premium services, which is uh, something that we uh, help our partners get all of that set up and get all of that infrastructure in place to go execute on it. Uh, ultimately, it all starts there. Because if you don't have that structure in place and you don't sort of uh, another way to th think about it like this, you, you go out as an integrator and you sell products all day long and you're great at it. You can sell the good, better, best packages in your sleep at this point. Well, do you have the same approach to service? 
do you have a, a productized version of your service that you can really lean on and say, hey, we know, Mr. Client, that every company in our market is going to tell you that they provide great service. We do it fundamentally differently. We have different options for different levels of needs and wants. Here's what that all looks like. We put it all in writing. We give it a guarantee. And ultimately, with that, that starting structure in place is really how you start to build and layer on the value of service within your company. Yeah, just having that kind of foundational perspective about it uh, would be kind of the key thing to get really going the way that uh, the way that one could get going. Now, in terms of, you know, getting that mindset changed in one's company is not an easy thing to do. Uh, Jason, let's stick with you. You you led a session during the recent CD Expo virtual event that was all about creating lasting change, which is uh, obviously a central tenet to being able to, uh, um, you know, fundamentally change how you go about doing service and uh, implementing that in your company. And you have to have various aspects of, of company buy-in with the rest of your employees. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about some of these tactics and strategies uh, that can help navigate big changes for companies and for people that, um, you know, we struggle with change all the time. It's just something that's not easily acceptable. And uh, you guys went over a lot of great points within that, uh, within that CEDIA Expo virtual presentation. Maybe you could just highlight a few of those um, for our yeah, listeners. Yeah, absolutely. And th there's a bunch of them. I think two, two that come to mind. Uh, number one, th think big and, and start small. That, that's a really big one. So you, you've got to have a big vision. You've got to, have, you've got to be able to paint a picture for the folks within your company of why they should be getting excited about this change. And I think we all sort of intuit that. That's a, it's a, it's a fairly obvious thing to say. Uh, it's a bit of a harder thing to go execute on. And so getting good at really being able to paint that picture and highlight less in sort of maybe logical or rational terms. I mean, it all has to make sense at its core, of course, but, but telling a good story, nothing gets people mm -hmm. charged up about something like like a good story. We're, we're wired for that as human beings. So you've got to be able to paint that big picture vision. But then the, the even harder part is, can you take that big picture vision and then scale it back to the smallest possible increment to get the flywheel moving? Uh, I'm a huge believer, both personally and here at the company in the, in the idea of momentum. And your biggest value add as a leader within your company, anytime you're trying to get any change implemented, is to create momentum. And you cannot create that momentum if you're starting out with these huge chunks of work that people in your company who are already fully tasked are going to just, they're going to just choke on it. And it's not because they're bad people. It's not because they're incompetent. They're just busy. And like all of us as human beings, they struggle with change. So you've got to really be able to paint that big picture vision and then get good at scaling that down into small little incremental pieces that, that are um, digestible for the team. And then the other high level thing that I would point out here is the idea of restraining versus driving forces. This is a big one that we talk about a lot. And so on either side of a change initiative, you have two competing forces. You're trying to you know, push the ball down the field and you've got the driving forces behind that, any force that is pushing for that change. So that could be the uh, economics of the change, you know, the possible profit, it could be solving pain within your company, whatever those driving forces are, they're pushing for that change. On the other side, you have restraining forces. And like the name implies, those are all of the forces that are pushing 
against it. And those often come down to old habits, fear, uncertainty, lack of bandwidth, all, all of these things. And where this becomes important is that, again, as human beings, so much of this comes down to just basic human psychology. Uh, our tendency when we run into friction with change, when, when things aren't moving as fast as we want them to, our instinct is to push. It's to apply more driving forces. So push harder, give incentives, uh, threaten punishment, um, reprimands, these, these sorts of things. And ultimately you can succeed in getting some motion with those, but ultimately what you end up doing is really creating a system that's full of tension. And if that's your only approach, then ultimately those driving forces not only have to be applied very heavily, but they also have to be applied continually. In other words, as soon as you take your foot off the gas, everything sort of springs back and you're, you're back to square one. So the better approach as a leader within your company, again, is to think about what are all of the reasons that this change won't work and start from there. Because if you have the right people and if you don't, that's a whole different conversation, right? But let's assume you've got a good team and, and let's assume that you've got buy-in on the change initiative as a whole, then you really need to focus on why is it not moving? Because all these other things are in place already. And, and it sounds obvious, but it is one of those things that if you're really deliberate and even just sit down for five minutes of critical thinking about your project and say, mm -hmm. what is it that's holding my team back? A lot of times that'll unveil uh, some good insights that, that you can really use to remove some of those restraining forces and take a lot of tension. Yeah. Um, and I think if I remember correctly, you talk a lot about trying to take away, just remove that sort of, um, you know, reluctancy for personnel to, uh, to bring it, you know, to even suggest those things about why a change might not work. Um, they really want to step up and get some opinions from people, from everyone from on top all the way down onto the bottom of the company, right? Yeah, yeah, ab absolutely. There's a, there's a great book I read recently called The, the Culture Code. And mm -hmm. the author, whose name is unfortunately escaping me right now, but he went and studied a, a whole bunch of really high performance organizations. These were companies like IDEO, Pixar, the Navy SEALs, you know, th organizations of that caliber. And his central thesis through the book is really that one of the biggest things that drives high performance cultures is a, is a sense of, of belonging, mm -hmm. of that safe space, of that ability for teams to have the hard conversations and bring up the difficult topics. And, and he attributed a lot of this to simple things that many of us take for granted, you know, high fives in the office, uh, little meetings, having social gatherings, talking about things outside of work, books, favorite shows, like whatever it is to just create a sense of community within the company. But ultimately, Arlen, you're 100% right. Like that, especially when it comes to navigating change, having that safe space yeah. is, is critical. Besides some of those, uh, those things, um, Jason or Joey, uh, you've been around this for a long, long time in terms of um, companies that can successfully navigate these changes. What are some of those other, um, you know, company culture characteristics that we can really look to and say, you know, all right, we've dealt with a lot of companies at this point. You know, here are some of the ones that we can tell you anecdotally have, have you know, these certain things that they all kind of do right to, to do what it takes um, to really well, change things at their company. And before I even dive into that, just to uh, piggyback a little bit off of what Jason said and maybe tie in a decade worth of history for this industry. You know, uh, I remember when I first engaged with Ihiji back in 2012, 13, 14, around that mm -hmm. time frame, And back then it all appeared to be as simple as, 
all right, we have a box that finally lets us do monitoring. Now go get recurring revenue and be a service company. Right, not as easy and as flipping for, a switch. That's right. And for years, I remember, sure. you know, I, I, I was involved in IHG and I, I invested in IHG and I, I uh, you know, strategized with them on the board. And I remember us banging our heads against the wall thinking, why isn't this working? Why isn't this happening? Why aren't, you know, integrators taking this and running with it, right? And then, you know, then, okay, you know, we developed one vision to enable service operations. And if it weren't for Jason, I got to tell you, I'd probably still be banging my head against the wall and saying, <laughs> why isn't this working? What, what's going on, right? And it really comes down to actually appreciating what goes into being a great change agent and enabling a business to shift. Our, our industry, while it has an amazing potential ahead of it, it also has an incredibly difficult challenge ahead of it because we are... We are one of, we're, we're, I believe to be a fairly unique subcontractor whose environment is shifting underneath us. And I don't mean the technology. I mean, every subcontractor has shifting technologies and landscapes, but our entire business model and value proposition is shifting. And that is not something that most other industries, service related industries are going through uh, or, or have to contend with, but we have to contend with that. And that means, you know, being comfortable, number one, acknowledging that that's the big idea part that Jason was describing. But then number two, having to persevere through what's required to change. And one of my favorite lines that Jason has, you know, empowered me with is that big change is simply a series of small decisions. That's it. It's as straightforward as that, right? And I, I think about wanting to eat healthier in my personal life. I think about wanting to work out every day. I think about uh, ultimately what it means to you know, uh, lose weight or whatever it is and stay healthy. And there are days when I don't want to get out of bed. And there are days when I'm like, this is just too hard. I don't want to get up early and work out or I don't want to resist that cookie. And I just go back to, it's just another small decision. I don't have to worry about how am I going to resist the next hundred cookies that are in front of me? I just have to worry about this one. Right. So Jason, Matt props to you because you've like really infiltrated my entire life, right? Every day I look at cookies and that's what I, I think about. So you come up all the time. But as it relates to the culture, Arlen, that you were, you were asking about, you know, the, the companies that we find that are really capable of embracing this concept and, and, and thriving in that environment. Um, you know, I think our, our cultures that enable, uh, that are enable a team to shift from a world where key man dependency is okay to a world where actually key man dependency threatens the business. Because if we think about it, the project-oriented models that we've had, they are capable of subsisting on key man dependent environments where you have one or two people in the company driving the majority of sales and clients call them for service all the time and you know everything hinges on them. But when you think about the nature of service, I mean, it requires multiple people to engage with the client in order to solve the same problem over the span of you know, several days or 24 seven, no one person can do all of this. But the very nature of service is that it's, it's quick, it's reactionary, it you, you have to be able to address like, unpredictable things in the moment. And as a team, you all need to be able to do that together. And you also need to be able to continue to deliver when one person's out sick for the day. Right. And that's a completely different environment. That environment is one that, you know, enables delegation, a lot of trust, um, uh, you know, one that is a value-oriented decision-making pro mm -hmm. process, yeah. 
right? So establishing you know, a vision for the company, a mission for the company, values that guide everybody to make the right decisions when they're confronting unknown environments, unknown right. situations, because you can't predict. Right? In project planning, you can plan for most everything, right? Even the tech can call back to the project manager and say, hey, I encountered this, what do I do? In service, but the service model doesn't allow for that. Service model requires very quick decisions that are very high stakes decisions in front of clients who have high expectations, who are paying for that service. So it just requires a different kind of culture and a different approach. Um, but it, it comes down to, I think, trust. And you know, in order to trust, you have to have consistent principles that everybody believes in and are able to execute on. Yeah, well, and I think that's a good segue into uh, another thing that we wanted to talk about in terms of, um, you know, one vision you guys are all about, it seems to be the bottom line is about, you know, just making companies more efficient at what they do by kind of taking this whole huge aspect of it, uh, uh, of the service aspect of it and, you know, supplying the assist there. But you help them really with their companies from top to bottom. And so one of the things that you guys talked about um, quite a bit with companies is the importance of an organizational chart, which is something that, you know, um, company heads might look at org charts and say, well, you know, they're kind of a mundane piece of documentation, but really they can be used as this, um, you know, powerfully effective tool uh, to really, you know, come about and create different change, accountability, culpability, um, and efficiency at the same time. So let's talk a little bit about that and what you um, are some of the things that One Vision preaches to companies about org charts and how they can help them. Go ahead, Jason. Yeah, ha happy to jump in on that. So I think, um, uh, again, drawing back on some of my experience as a, as a former integrator, the, the org chart wasn't something that I recall ever really uh, discussing. That's not to say it didn't exist, but it certainly wasn't something that was front and center um, and a sort of a primary decision-making tool uh, in the business. And many years ago, I read a, a great book called The E-Myth, which I'm sure many of your listeners are, are familiar with. And there was a concept in that book that just really resonated with me. And he was talking about um, the idea that even if you're a sole proprietor, even if you are the single person in your business and there's nobody else, that one of the most important things that you can do is create an org chart. And then basically you have every position in your company and you have your picture or your name on every one of those positions. And the reason why that's an important exercise is because clarity is king here. Like you really do need to understand what are all of the things that, that are required in order for my business to function on, on a day-to-day day -day basis. And that concept scales all the way up. And so you don't have to be a sole proprietor or single person company to have value here. You think about the five to 10 to 15 to 20 person companies out there, you still have a ton of people wearing multiple hats. And this is very, very common in the industry. It's almost universal at a certain level. And so having clarity about, hey, when I'm engaging with you on this particular topic or on this particular challenge, I'm wearing hat number one. And when I engage with you on this other challenge, I'm wearing hat number two. And that sounds like an academic distinction, but it is important for creating that clarity and creating clear boundaries and clear processes and structure within your company to understand that while you may be reporting to me, Jason, for uh, numerous different things, you are in fact reporting to me in maybe two or three different capacities. 
And that becomes especially valuable, not just from a day-to-day -day sort of process engineering standpoint, but particularly as you're looking at your company and trying to get rid of things like Joey talked about, the key man dependency. How many areas of the company are we dependent on a single person for? And heaven forbid something happened to that person, would we be just totally up a creek? So creating clarity about your key man dependencies is also really, really important. And then lastly, your growth plans. It gives you a lot of clarity about where do we need to hire? That's not always obvious. That's not always an easy decision. It can feel like, hey, we really need to hire here, but ultimately that might just be the most recent thing that's come up, right? That may be the most obvious thing that's on your mind, but if you look at an org chart, you may see something totally different. And maybe instead of hiring another technician, you instead choose to uh, shore up your back office, for example. So it, it is a very valuable decision-making tool as well. In that regard. Yeah, so just that whole process of going through everything can really help you do a lot of uh, important self-analysis on your company, where like you said, I love that example of you know, almost that recency bias. Well, we, we needed trouble here um, and we needed to quickly hire someone maybe, but that's looking maybe short-term as opposed to long-term. It's a, that's yeah. a very interesting- Yeah, you're, you're uh, kind of going of with it. the thing that, that jumps to mind the easiest yeah. versus having that documentation. And, and you know, that speaks to another point of just like, we use a lot of uh, the written word here internally at One Vision. And we, we're big on a concept called briefs, which is where you just kind of write out an idea. I won't go too into detail on that because to tie it to org charts, there's a similar idea here. The reason that we love writing so much is not just because it's a great way to communicate ideas across the company, but it creates clarity. The very act of sitting down and putting together a piece of documentation forces you to think much more clearly about something than just letting that stuff rattle around in your head. And I would say it's very much the same thing with an org chart. Yeah. Uh, Joey, if we, if we fast forward, you know, five years from now, um, when you're going to think about what an integration company is going to look like it, uh, if it's one that has successfully transitioned to this service delivery model that we've been talking about, um, you know, what are some of those uh, attributes that are going to stand out in your mind about, um, you know, this, theoretical company if we're looking, you know, a handful of years down the road. Yeah, and I think this is a, a great thing to touch on next because it actually ties a lot of the previous elements together. I think, you know, Jason's exercise of, of uh, evaluating the org chart, even for a one or five person company, it sort of feels obvious, but why would you do it? And when you think about growth strategy, well, what's the growth strategy? And I think this is where we have to ask ourselves, what's the why here, right? Is growth simply transforming from a, you know, uh, 10 project a month business to a hundred project a month business. That's just like sort of the traditional uh, way that, you know, I think we think about mm -hmm. growth uh, or is growth actually about tackling what the future uh, of our business looks like. Um, and I think that again, comes back to what our industry has to contend with. And so when I think about the future, and this is what my last you know 10 to 15 years of experience working with high net worth families in the Boston area taught me, what I learned is that people will have more tech tomorrow than they have today. I think that's gonna be a true statement for a very long time. I also learned that tech is always breaking. So if we believe that tech is always breaking, and by the way, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're installing bad technology or you're installing it poorly. Tech okay. is always breaking, <laughs> might be the integration breaks. It might be the credit card fails and yeah. the client's experience with Netflix is interrupted. Think of it as, you know, Apple has this beautiful statement of, your job at the Genius Bar isn't to repair technology, it's to repair the relationship with technology that that person has, right? Same thing here. When we say tech is breaking, 
it doesn't matter what's causing the issue. We just mean it's a negative experience in the moment and the client's looking for help. And many times it's not because of you, the integrator, it's because of all the other things. So if we believe in those things, it means that people will have more technology problems tomorrow than they have today. And when people have problems, they tend to look for a service to get rid of those problems. And at the high end of the market, there will always be a massive gravitational pull to quality, always. At the mass market level, you got Best Buy and Comcast and others trying to play around with remote tech support options and things like that. But I think at the top one to 2%, you're always gonna have people who prefer and are able to pay for higher quality service. Mm -hmm. So to me, growth means your business might continue to do five, 10, 15 projects a month, whatever it is. But think of that as 10 projects a month, just hitting a conveyor belt. And you let that happen for long enough. And when you end up realizing is you have a pile of a thousand projects that all carry with it this requirement to now be serviced and maintained. And remember that the tech we installed a decade ago or two decades ago was fairly analog and required less service. The tech we're installing today actually requires a lot more service. It's a lot more interconnected. There's a lot more interaction with the client, a lot more opportunities for it to go wrong. So it actually feels like that pile is growing exponentially, even though your project side of your business is just continuing to hum along. So when I think about growth, you know, I don't necessarily think, how do we go and blow up our installation teams and have 10 teams with 10 trucks and go and like keep them out in the field all the time. I think about, well, what does the service department have to look like in order to support all of that over time? Mm -hmm. It's not just one tech trying to manage a few things a day. You end up having 10 or 20 issues a day. You end up having to have several technicians being scheduled. Now you have to have very efficient scheduling. Now you have to think about remote support, advanced support. And this is when we get back. And we have, by the way, haven't even expanded to thinking, what happens when an integrator tackles the opportunity to manage personal technology, right? The client already sees you as the expert in tech. They're right. starting to not see the difference between the remote and their iPhone. Eventually this will translate if it hasn't already to a demand for personal tech support and then translate it to appliances. So when that smart dishwasher breaks, who are they gonna call the Maytag man or the technology company, right? And so I see a future where anything in the house that's connected goes back to the tech company. Do you still need a plumber to make sure the pipe is connected properly? Yes, no doubt. But the first call is likely to be to the tech manager, you know, the tech company that's managing all that. So this now comes back to what is your perspective on it? And I think many integrators see this growing river of service and this current that's growing and it's getting bigger and it's starting to feel insurmountable and they're continuing to swim upstream against it. And there's this feeling of, and I hear this from many integrators who call us in the very first call, it's, I just don't want to deal with this anymore, right? I, I want to have my life back or whatever it is. And that's a very fair place to be, of course. What that translates to is I want to stop this current. And what we want to do is re retrain our brain to think about this as actually, how do we put an uh, energy plant in the river, a generator? And now let's actually harness all that power. Right? Let's actually align our business with the current right? and embrace the demand for service, not take it so personally, not feel guilty about it, recognize that we are superheroes in our clients' minds and that it is worth paying us for that. Exactly. And it's such a huge that's opportunity. That's the future we see. It's a yeah. huge opportunity. That's and right. Whether, whether it is you know, partnering with a third-party service like yourself or putting the investment into their own companies to say, okay, well, we you know we want to manage this our own way of doing it. Just the whole aspect of service, like you said, with so many devices out there, 
and so many different ways technology is kind of creeping into some of these other parts of their life, like major appliances and yep. uh, things like that. Um, it's just going to get bigger and bigger. Uh, so it's, it's fascinating. Um, Jason and Joey, let's just uh, conclude lastly, talking about the client and talking about their, you know, this sort of ever growing demand that's going to be out there for service. Um, you know, there's the integration uh, side of things. There's the, the support side of things. Let's talk about just the, um, to conclude with the, just the client side of things in terms of um, how important it is to find the right clients out there and what are some tips for attracting those kind of clients and filtering uh, them out so you have the right kind of projects that you're dealing with going forward that you're able to kind of jump on for this potential growth out there? Yeah. Yeah, I think to jump in there first, the every integrator out there listening has had probably multiple clients who spent a ton of money and, and put in really awesome projects, but were horrible clients, right? And, and they're just, they're, they're mean, they're nasty, they don't understand, uh, there's no empathy when things go wrong that aren't in your control. It, you know, it's, it's totally, it doesn't matter. Like, it's just, you're in the crosshairs constantly and, and sort of under a microscope. Um, and, and that's really hard. That's very taxing uh, to deal with. And it's difficult on the company. Now, you can't filter for 100% of that. So, sometimes that's going to get you. But ultimately, I would go back to earlier in the conversation when we talked about the idea of, of putting some structure in place, having a common terms of service uh, that everybody acknowledges, having different tiered plans, including some sort of free offering as well as paid offerings that all of your clients are required to pick from. It becomes a phenomenal tool for creating great conversation. And when you put that on the table in front of your client at the very beginning of the relationship and you frame it such that, again, look, everybody's going to tell you they provide great service. We've really put a lot of thought into shaping our service program. Here's what we believe. Here's why we do this. And all we need you to do is tell us what level of service you would like to receive from us. And then we'll guarantee it. We'll back it up with a guarantee. There's no more best effort. There's no more call my cell phone and hope that I answer and hope that I'll get to you. It's all there in black and white. And by putting it on the table like that, you, you, you fundamentally change the nature of the conversation. It is now 100% up to the client to make a decision about the level of service that they would like to receive. And this is a very common construct. I mean, this is table stakes in the world of MSPs right? You don't enter a, a sort of a best effort service agreement with an MSP where they say, call my cell phone and I'll do my best. Um, and we've got to bring that model into the residential space. That is one of the best filters for clients who either do, you know, to, to determine whether they, they understand the importance of service or not. And again, you're not going to filter for hundred percent. It's not a it's not to say that it's a disqualifier if they don't want your pr premium best package, but it, it, it is to say that it gives you a chance to get aligned. That's the most important thing. It gives you a chance to manage those expectations from the very beginning and carry that conversation throughout the entire relationship versus kind of brushing service under the rug during the sales process and then waiting until you know they move into the home and start to really experience what it's like to have technology that fails. And now you're playing that game from a defensive position. So I would say one of the best ways to, to attract and work with the right kind of clients is to 
Um, play an offensive game. Go on the offensive with service. Stop playing defense. Put it on the table. Don't be afraid to talk about it. That's probably the number one thing. All right, Joey, anything to add to that in terms of uh, integrators going, you know, moving forward and, and finding the right clients and the people who are going to uh, pay for that support. And, you know, as you say, pay a good price so the integrators are able to show the value of what they do for a living. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, there's uh, an interesting future to think about as you, you know, maybe um, absorb what Jason just said and, and imagine how that might work in your business. Uh, when I would sell my service and I was starting to become an integrator as well, clients would call me, you know, okay, I'm building a house. I'm looking to get all this stuff installed. And when I would engage with them after hearing them out, I'd say, okay, I understand there's a project. Let's park that project for a second. Um, I want to tell you what it is that we actually do. What we do is we actually manage technology and we, uh, service your technology. We ensure that the tech you have, you know, going forward is everything that you need. And, and we're your number one, your, your one-stop shop for everything tech, you know, going forward. The fact that there happens to be a project right now, great. That's just the beginning of our relationship. What I'm not here to do is sell you a bunch of hardware. It's not what I do. To me, it, it doesn't matter actually, if you end up buying a hundred inch TV or a 20 inch TV, it doesn't matter if you do a big home theater or a small home theater what matters to me is that we have an understanding about what you're actually hiring me to do, which is be your technology manager for what I suspect will be for life if I do a good job. Uh, here's how we charge for service. Here's how we uh, uh, ascribe our value. Uh, and you know, here's what you can expect service might actually cost. And it's hard to tell because I don't know what kind of family you are and what kind of lifestyle you have and what your expectations are. You know, We have some really straightforward systems where the client calls us every week because they're always looking for a little bit of help on something. And we have some very sophisticated systems where clients barely call us at all because they know how to sort of, they've learned to self troubleshoot some basic things as they come up. Um, but, you know, I recommend we start the conversation there to see if we're a good fit. And then of course, I'm more than happy to engage in a design and engineering discussion around what technology in your home, you know, you might need. So uh, that's how I used to start it. And I would certainly filter some people out who are like, you know, and they would say, well, shouldn't this stuff just never break? <laughs> red red flag a, right there. <laughs> that's right. And if a client, you know, refuses to see, you know, the reality, we would just never fit. And that's great. I've now saved myself from a lifetime uh, negative value, right? If we think lifetime value of a client, I've saved myself from negative value cost, right? I, I like to ask integrators a lot. If you got a $100,000 project offer that was actually a little outside your scope, you told me you love brand X, but they're insisting on brand Y, would you do it? And it's really interesting to see how many integrators confidently are able to say no, because I'm not designed to make money doing that, right? So having confidence in what your value proposition is, having confidence in you know, what is a good fit for your business, and it's gonna be different for every integrator. Um, and being able to suss that out in your opening conversations with the client, um, Jason's right, you're, you're not gonna filter out every single negative one. Um, but the key is to at least put in a little bit of the effort up front to filter out most of them uh, and set sure. yourself up for success. Yeah. And if, if I can just jump in and add one more quick thing, because Arlen, I, I think it's important when, when you asked Joey that you mentioned, hey, finding those clients who will pay for service. And while I would agree, that's one, that's great. Like, absolutely. If you could find a hundred percent clients who are willing to pay a premium or recurring monthly revenue, 
membership or whatever that looks like, that, that would be wonderful. But really the main point here, again, is, is to uh, not necessarily limit yourself to those clients who are willing to pay for that premium level of service. Rather, it's about making sure that 100% of clients who come into your, your world, who, who become clients of yours, understand that service is a reality and make a conscious decision about what level of service they are going to pick. And that might mean you might have awesome clients, best clients in the world who don't want premium service. They're totally okay with calling and waiting a week for an appointment, not a big deal. That's great. As long as they make that decision consciously, that's, that's really the biggest thing that matters. And to tie that up, I think to, to go back and succinctly, you know, summarize what I was saying earlier, uh, it's about ultimately understanding what is your product of service and how do you make money doing it? And then simply asking clients to agree to buying that product that way so that no matter how a client wants to do business with you, it's fair for you to say it should be profitable, right? And so Jason's right, not all clients will want premium service. Great, they don't have to buy it, but then they have to be willing to still engage with you in the way that you wanna be engaged. They don't get to just call your cell phone and get free service. Unless that's your business model. If that's your business model, wonderful. <laughs> then you should engage in that, right? But if that's not your business model, then make sure you filter for that. Just like, you know, integrators tell me all the time, well, I don't give away free speakers. Well, why not? Aren't there clients who ask for that? Yeah, but then I wouldn't be in business. Well, same thing. Figure out what the product is around your service department. It doesn't even have to include any recurring revenue. If you wanted, you could explore a model where you simply charge every time they call you pick up the phone, you could charge them. It might be a different experience. That's a different problem. But the point is, is as long as they agree to do business the way you want to do business, you have a good, you have a good opportunity to have a great relationship. Right? Sales is all about the client who, I, who has something they are willing to pay for, has a want that they're willing to pay for, and you have a product that you're willing to sell them. When those align, you have beautiful relationships. But when clients want remote support all the time and trying to reach you, but you haven't yet figured out a way to deliver it or aren't willing to sell it, then taking on a client like that, even if they are willing to buy 50 grand worth of hardware, is going to lead to ultimately a negative experience. Right. Well, and like, uh, you know, we've kind of heard all over the years, you know, the, the long-term relationship with the, cl the client is one of the most important things for an integrator to stay afloat, um, you know, to get referral business from repeat customers, you know, when things need upgrading, well, where are you going to go? You're going to go to your existing client base. They know who they can go to. So in, in that respect, you know, obviously the service department could be the, the uh, absolute key department uh, of an integration company. So, uh, so Jason Griffin and Joey Kolchinski of One Vision Resources, we really thank you guys for the time today and going over all these uh, important aspects of the service department and everything um, about creating change in your business. Yeah, we, we appreciate you having us on, Arlen. Thanks, Arlen. Thanks, Arlen.